This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight. And I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience. I wore a 511 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago, and I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there, so some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old, worn, frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts so they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, they have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. Welcome, guys, to episode 162 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and I'm very excited to welcome on the show Chris and Sam Adams, who are identical twins, so they are popping my podcast cherry when it comes to having twins on the show. Um, and they're also both firefighter paramedics in Colorado. They authored the book Life and Death Matters, really kind of honing in on ownership and skill training in the paramedic side and the firefighter side. So great, great conversation. I do want to highlight something, though. In the conversation, I mentioned an episode with David and his son, Drew. And I'll be the first to admit that I blanked on their name, got the name wrong, so I had to cut out the name. That episode is 169, and David Hughes is a gentleman's name. He lost his son, Drew Hughes, to medical malpractice. So I urge you, if you listen to that part, to then go to episode 169 as well, because if you want to hear a horror story of what happens if we don't own our own training that is the story you need to listen to next. And then Chris and Sam certainly bring the solution to that with the ownership side and with their book. So before we get to the interview, like I always say, please take a moment and go to iTunes, Stitcher, whichever you're listening to this on. Subscribe to the show. Leave a rating. Five Star obviously makes us the most visible. Um, and then leave feedback too. I love reading your comments on what you think of the show. And then most importantly, take these episodes and share them. Social media, email, carrier pigeon, whatever you can think of. Every single one of these episodes has so much knowledge and these people have taken hours of their lives to reach out to you guys. And you, the listener, is an extension of this podcast. So the more you share, the more we grow, the more we get the knowledge to the people. We can change their personal lives. We can change their professional lives. And these are so many of the solutions to the problems that we see out there. So with that being said, I introduce to you both Chris and Sam Adams. Enjoy. 
So Chris and Sam, I want to start by saying thank you so much for reaching out to me uh, and now coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having us. It's pretty exciting to be here. It's been a little bit of time and I've been excited to be a part of your show. Great things that you do. And so uh, it's um, a real privilege to be talking with you, man. Yeah, thanks, James, for letting us come on the show here and having a good discussion with you. No problem. I'm sure it will be. I'm, I'm very excited about it. So where are we finding you on planet Earth today? We're sitting in bitter cold Colorado Springs right now. It was 50 degrees yesterday, nice and sunny, and it's about 19 this morning. So we're in the Colorado changing weather quickly grind right now. Beautiful. You have a gorgeous, gorgeous state, though. I was there with my family last, uh, I think it was February this year, and we went skiing up in the Denver area. So I'm jealous. I like the cold. Yeah, it's nice. It is nice, but it's getting cold. <laughs> All right. So I'd like to start at the very beginning. This is going to be nice and easy because you both came from the same womb. Um, so where were you born and what was your family dynamic like? Uh, well, we were both born here in Colorado Springs and um, grew up together. We've got a, a younger brother also, and he lives in South Carolina. So there's three of us. And uh, we had a pretty, pretty normal childhood really growing up. Uh, we both were pretty active in sports. We played almost every sport you can think of except for maybe hockey. And that was probably just because we were playing something else. So we grew up in, in a lot of team sports. Um, and then we went to a military school in high school and continued to play sports down there. And then we both went to university of Northern Colorado up in Greeley, Colorado and graduated from there. Um, so that's really nothing, nothing too crazy about our upbringing. It was pretty, pretty normal. And what did your parents do? So, so our dad uh, worked for years for a, a local home builder here in town. Um, and then he now is a uh, small business owner doing um, his own small business. Our mom works as a paralegal uh, for a law firm here in town. And she's been doing that for years. Brilliant. And so the, with the, I heard you say you graduated from a military university. Is it because you went to a military school that gave you the track for that? Um, not so much. I think that it was uh, trying to get us a little bit more disciplined. We didn't really, at least I know for, my, for myself, I uh, didn't really have a whole lot of direction or sense of discipline at all when I was or when I was younger, especially in middle school and the first couple of years of high school. And I think that my parents recognized that and wanted to do something to try to remedy it. And so, and I think that they were wanting to see if there was uh, a benefit from trying to get uh, a different education. And so they saw an opportunity for us to go down to New Mexico and, so we attended New Mexico Military Institute in Roswell, which is, I didn't even know Roswell was real. I thought that it was a fake place that <laughs> UFOs were from. So did and I. so when my dad said we were going to go to Roswell, New Mexico for school, I was like, well, that's, isn't that like science fiction? Like I didn't think that it was a real place, but it is. So we spent four years down there and it really was one of the best things that ever happened to me because in kind of your 
developing years because we went down there when we were 15 or so and through 19 or 20 and in those developing years we really got reinforced with the sense of discipline and uh, integrity and the need for those things and how they manifest themselves and how do you demonstrate those things and it was a really cool uh, it was an amazing school and it was just an amazing opportunity to try to get some of those things solidified and into your own kind of psyche early on in your in your uh, development. Well, I think also what was cool about it is that there's this idea that we're you're kind of a product of the folks that you hang around with, and there's those sayings out there: "Show me who your friends are, and I'll show you who you will be in five years," or those sorts of ideas. And when you're around. Well, when we were in New Mexico at school, we were surrounded by people who are driven and people that are sort of really motivated and have very strong work ethics. And so that kind of permeates your own work ethic and you begin to realize that the harder you work, the the better outcomes you can have in life and you should be driven towards things and trying to um, help out where you can and take advantage of the opportunities that are given you. So it was really cool to be kind of surrounded by a lot of folks that were like-minded in that respect, and which has been really a lifelong journey for us both, I think, because that's really transitioned into, you know, where we work now. As you know, as a firefighter, you're surrounded by folks that are really driven and really motivated to be successful and motivated to work hard and become better every single day and so i think that when we first started in new mexico that started to begin to build that foundation for us and it's just kind of carried carried us through our whole lives probably oh yeah before i went there i was so i was so lost. all i cared about was playing sports and not going to school and then once I went down there and recognized, hey, you got to put some work in, you got to have some work ethic and some integrity with, with what you're doing. And then when you're surrounded by people that are doing it, just like Chris said, it makes it easier. So you are who your friends are. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that they say you're the sum of the five people closest to you, and you can choose the, choose those people. And everyone listening, even now, you look around. And uh, yeah, like you can definitely, and I've, I found this even with this project, you can have some people now in this amazing technological world that we're in that you can kind of include in that five that you're not even geographically next to. But with Skype and phone calls and all these things, you can immerse yourself with, with great people that you're not living with. Totally. Yeah, I think that that's true. And you know, it's fun because you can um, even keep in touch with and interact with folks across the world now that you would have lost contact with or would have lost touch with and you can maintain those relationships much easier now absolutely all right well then being in a military school i'm assuming that one of the tracks out of there would be into the military um what drove you guys to the fire service that's kind of a an interesting story in and of itself I was on track through an ROTC program in 
uh, University of Northern Colorado. And that's the ROTC program for um, – it's kind of an, a reserve officer uh, training that you get. And so um, that kind of just fell through for me. It didn't really – it didn't really manifest every time I was trying to open doors for the military. It, it just, it didn't seem right. I, I was met with lots of roadblocks. And finally, I think that I stopped for a minute and really, it was a, it was a hard pause and a real hard come hard reality that I had to come to that I needed to pursue other things. Um, and so I got out of college and was trying, was pursuing a, a career in the enlisted ranks and had a contract to enlist into the army. When one of our great friends that's on uh, the job with us now was in a EMT school class. And he said, Hey, you guys should really check out this EMT class. It's um, really awesome. And so we sort of went to that, EMT school and the rest is history, so to speak. I mean, that was when I really realized how much value you can bring by being a first responder and how the things that first responders do really are beneficial to communities and that service like-minded people. And so I went down the first responder route instead of military but yeah, certainly lots of folks that come out of that school go go to active duty serving in the military. And it's kind of cool today, you know, is Veterans Day for us. And so shout out to all those veterans and all those folks that did go and serve and protect our freedoms every day. So thanks thanks to them. You got anything to add? No, I think that that's pretty much, uh, that sums it up really. I think that once uh, once I got a hold of that EMT class and then got on an ambulance and started running some calls and then was able to get into a 911 system and start uh, running some 911 calls and not just um, inter-facility like hospice transfers and stuff, it really uh, helped me realize how much fun it was and helped me realize that I think this is what I wanted to do. And then was able to get into medic school and then uh, up in Denver and the rest is kind of history from there. But I think that that first EMT class was really instrumental for me to open my eyes as to what first responders really do. I mean, before that, I just knew that if you called 911, some people showed up and, and could probably help with whatever problem you were having. But there's so much more organization that goes behind it that goes behind on the, in the scenes. And, um, there's a lot of training and a lot of thought that goes on into that entire, uh, process and the people that respond every single day, there's, there's so much value that they bring to their local communities. So, and I just wanted to be a part of that and, and I thought it was a blast. So, and I knew that at some point I could make an impact and even if it's just with one person, you know, trying to help help a little old lady off the ground. So, yeah, and that's it. I mean, I've talked about that before. That's some of the most rewarding calls. Sometimes is you know the the, the non emergency ones where you're just giving someone their dignity back. Totally, absolutely. I 
I think that that's those are some of my favorite calls too. I love going and helping somebody out in the middle of the night that just is in a bad way, and it really is. It can be extremely rewarding if you have the right mentality towards what it is that you're doing. Absolutely. All right. So just to everyone listening, if they haven't heard any of your other interviews that you've done, so you guys are identical twins. So um, when it came to these journeys into the fire service, did you do them at exactly the same time? No, not not exactly. We uh, we both worked for a private ambulance <laughs> company in Denver and got our paramedics while uh, working up there. And then I was uh, fortunate enough to interview down in for the city of Colorado Springs Fire Department. And I was fortunate enough to get on, on hired on down here uh, one year before Sam. He was still busy finishing up some paramedic school stuff. So then he got on a year after. So I have the seniority card, which is, as all firefighters know, the the gold standard, I guess you for could vacation. say. For vacation. <laughs> I was a little bit delayed. Honestly, I didn't get accepted to medic school when Chris did. I failed the test to get into paramedic school and was pretty – I guess I didn't really take it as seriously as I should have. And I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be. And I didn't put the time and effort into preparing for it at all. And I failed that test. And it was a pretty big, that was a pretty big wake up call for me because I thought it was kind of like, oh, you just apply. And, and I've been riding an ambulance for three or four years. So I'll get in. And uh, this is the natural progression. And it's not a big deal, but it actually is. And so that was a big wake up call for me. And it was, it was actually good for me, I think. And, uh, in the long run, I definitely benefited from it and it changed my mentality and it changed my disposition towards, uh, attacking the, uh, attacking what I wanted and trying to go out and get it and preparing better for it. So yeah, I was a little bit behind Chris for sure and had to go through everything a year, year and a half afterwards. So, Brilliant. All right. Well, then I want to talk about your experience first. So we're going to talk about the book in a little bit and obviously ownership and mentorship and some of these areas that you guys talk about are extremely important. When you went through your formative years in the, the fire service and EMS, what were some of the, the good things and what were some of the bad things that you experienced with the people that were mentoring you as a young firefighter? Well, for me, I think I was extremely fortunate that I had, when I went through the fire academy uh, and then I went through probation, our probation down here is a year and our academy was 17 weeks. After that, I was able to bid into a station where the lieutenant was one of my cadre members on the, uh, in the academy and he was a fantastic lieutenant. And he really, he really taught me a lot of things as far as um, how to just deal with people in general and how to foster people's own development and growth. And he taught me that, you know, it's okay to not know everything, but to know where to find the answers is really more important. And he taught me that it's okay really to 
allow other people to do things in a different way. And I think he reinforced that for me and was always willing to go out and train because I was so new, new to a lot of the fire service stuff. I had, I had been running medicals for years and years, but, uh, the fire service stuff was brand new to me. So he was really willing to go out and train and willing to, uh, give all of his kind of institutional knowledge about the fire service and about how to pull hose lines and how to, when you should, you know, put water on the fire and what your, you know, all these different little things. And he was just fantastic. And then I think that on the flip side, um, so I was really fortunate to have him as, as one of my, as my first Lieutenant basically off of probation. And on the flip side of that, uh, I think that, very rarely, really, you see – sometimes you see some training that takes place where you can recognize that you don't want to be a part of that. And it's not really uh, – I think that some people are too – become too invested in themselves and invested in demonstrating their own capabilities rather than helping somebody else uh, foster and develop theirs. And so I saw that a few times. Uh, and, and I think that that's probably normal in any environment, any discipline, whether it's a, at the local accounting firm or it's in the firehouse. I think that that's probably pretty normal. And but I think that I was I recognize that I don't really want to be like that. So I wanted to help other people develop themselves in a in a better way and be a part of that. Yeah, I think that's important especially when you're functioning in the role of the mentor to really be invested in the individual that you're mentoring really be invested in their success and their development instead of trying to demonstrate what how great you are and sort of take away from their learning success and their ability to kind of develop as an individual. I think that's incredibly important for, um, for the, uh, mentor for me coming on the line, my first officer on probation set a great example for me because he was nearing retirement, but he still led from the front and always was willing to work with me and help me become a little bit better firefighter, a little bit better paramedic. And so when I saw that he was always the first one out the door, always wanting to be the first one to get to the patient or the first one to pull a hose line in the morning, he was really set the standard for me as far as the example that you can have and the sort of impact that you can have as a firefighter throughout an entire career instead of sort of adopting a complacent attitude after so many years of service and thinking that your years of service have somehow granted you some deserved complacency, which I don't think is a real good attitude to have. And he never had that sort of attitude and he always sort of instilled that in me. And so that was my first experience on, on the lines as a firefighter. And then I had great mentors in Denver as paramedics 
individually before I even went to paramedic school. I remember my first rides as an ALS provider in the EM uh, as an EMT and watching my paramedic function at a very high level of medicine and extremely professional attitude towards running alarms. And I remember thinking to myself, I need to go to paramedic school because he was such a great mentor and, and had a, such a great attitude and disposition after, even after doing it for years and years. So I thought that's where I needed to go and the sort of attitude I wanted to adopt throughout my entire career. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, it sounds like um, one of those themes that I know you talk about this a lot. So let's jump on it now with the preceptors that you guys were under is humility. And it's something that I, I think the people that have that, 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 that really walk the walk when it comes to being humble are usually the great men and women, you know, the, the salty 30 year vets that still are learning, you know, that it's not even a question to do some training today. But, and to counter that, the ego is the man or woman who goes, looks at a cheat sheet and then runs a training just so they can show everyone how good they were at that skill, even though they just <laughs> watched the quick notes like five minutes before just to humiliate their crew. So, so tell me your, your, uh, your whole philosophy on humility and how that uh, pertains to becoming a paramedic. That's a, that's a great comment. And I think a lot of good insight. Um, I think over the last really two years that Sam and I have been collaborating over things and trying to write our book and develop some classes and help people out, and really define a few terms that are important. I think that I've come to the understanding and the realization that humility is the single most important attribute that people can have or embody. And it really is important in the firefighter and paramedic world. It's humility for me that the way I like to define it is this, it's the, it's the key to your sharpness. It's the key to how great you can become as a leader, how great you can become as a provider. Because what <coughs> humility does is it gives you the it's the vehicle, it's the vehicle by which you grow. And so when you begin your professional career as a paramedic or firefighter, having the humility to understand that, that you need to reflect on certain things that you're maybe deficient in or that you need to improve upon causes you to be in a constant state of growth. And that humble reflection causes you to understand the specifics about your professional or your personal practice. And so it allows you to address things that you know you need to address instead of arrogantly running an alarm and saying, oh, I'll figure it out next time having the humbleness and the humility to stop and reflect and say, I really, I really messed that one up. I need to go back to the books and figure out how to really address this problem and really become a better provider or a better firefighter. And so if you're constantly doing that and constantly demonstrating humility within your own practice and reflecting on the things that you have to get better at, that causes you to grow the 
uh, uh, walk up the mountain, right? Ascend the peak of greatness. But the key, but the, but the great thing about humility is if you have to maintain that level of humbleness throughout your career, because you may gain the pinnacle of your practice, but once you do, if you adopt an attitude of complacency or arrogance, what happens is you quickly fall from the top because now all of a sudden you're not reflecting on the things that you need to reflect on. You're not becoming better. Your, your, your growth has stagnated and you're no longer in a position of becoming better, but you're really in a position of falling behind because everybody else is continuing to grow beside you. And so instead of standing still and not moving anywhere, you're really moving backwards. So if you continue to practice humility throughout your career, you will never become complacent. You'll always be growing, growing. You'll always be moving forward. And so what really happens is humility is the key to your sharpness. It's the, it's your knife's edge. It's what causes you to stay sharp and stay always on top of your game, always reflecting, always becoming better, always identifying things that you can improve on, improve upon. And so then I think that, that if you practice that within yourself, it's contagious with your team. And then your team quickly recognizes that you're willing to identify things that you need to improve upon. And then they likewise follow suit and they improve. And then what happens is the entire team becomes better. And so humility to me is the single most important aspect of our jobs, the single most important personal character attribute that we can have as providers for the citizens that we serve because it makes us better every day. Yeah, I think um, that's pretty accurate, especially for the long-term and the overarching theme of how you act uh, over a career. But I think that humility, I've been thinking about this for a, for a while now, kind of kicking around this idea of, of how does that, how does or humility uh, demonstrate itself in the acute setting? And I think that I've come to the realization that there's two, there's two real key things that happen when you are humble in the acute setting, like at a structure fire, like you're the IC of a structure fire, or you're running a serious medical call where you've got to, you know, you know RSI somebody or, uh, you know, there's a shooting or uh, a, an MCI or something like that. In the acute setting, what humility does is it gives you it gives you two very important tools. One, it gives you flexibility, and that flexibility gives you the gives you the um, disposition to listen to other people and take in other information that you might otherwise overlook. And then it also gives you a creative mindset. So it gives you the ability to critically think and solve problems in a creative way because you're not so boxed in in uh, your arrogant understanding of what you think is going on. So I think that humility in the acute setting gives you those two tools. It gives you flexibility and it gives you a creative mindset to uh, solve problems in a creative way. So and I've been kind of kicking around that idea for a little while now, thinking about how does that how does that affect it? How does humility affect you in the in the 
uh, acute setting. And that's really important for firefighters and paramedics because we have to understand that, especially in our world, the scenes become extremely dynamic and can change very rapidly just on a little bit of information that you gather or a little bit of changing information that you otherwise would have missed by being willing to listen to one of your teammates about something. And it, and like Sam was saying, it, it gives you that flexibility. And so then you don't become so rigid in your treatment plan or so rigid in your, in your vision for how you want the structure fire to go. It allows you to demonstrate an ability to deviate from the blinders that you have on instead of arrogantly moving forward with so much pride that you don't think that anybody else brings value to the team or value to the call or value to the fire or the alarm in whatever sense you're it, it gives you that chance to step back and take in other people's considerations and other people's ideas about how to solve a problem yeah no i, I agree completely and again like i said i've seen humility in all all my mentors, all the people I you know, respect um, and admire. And what it strikes to me, or what strikes me is that humility takes courage. And the arrogant side is usually from cowardice. And what I mean by that is if you're constantly self-evaluating and you're constantly saying, what don't I know? Then when it comes to that critical call that you run, hopefully you're going to have a lot of training to fall back on, which gives you confidence, not arrogance. And now you're able to critically think with your mental toolbox. But the ones that hide from the training, whether it's physical training, mental training, medical training, the walk around beating their chest, looking for a way to ridicule someone rather than grow themselves is cowardice. And it's the people that are, are too scared to look in the mirror and go, I don't know these things in a profession where we're never going to know them, even after 30, 40 years on the job. I Absolutely. think that's yeah. I I completely agree. That's that's true, and that's something that we that's something that we talk about in our book too. Is this idea of of always needing to move forward, always needing to get better, and always needing to reflect on your own personal practice so that you can be a better teammate, be a better provider, a better firefighter, or a better person in whatever professional discipline you have. And I do think that 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 arrogance is a demonstration of cowardice. I think that that's probably a pretty good way of defining that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. I think that it's funny because you'll get guys that are like, so uh, they want to they just want to prove what they know rather than helping somebody else develop themselves. And that's demonstrated through exactly what you're saying, the arrogance. Yeah, well, for me personally, and, and, and uh, this is this is my view on it, and it has been right from the very beginning, is we are responsible from so many things. And I talked about this a lot on the podcast before, but huge respect to our law enforcement brother and sisters. But, you know, when, when it's not involving some sort of arrest, chase, detain kind of thing, then, you know, everything else is, is left to us. And that's a beautiful thing. It's something I love about the fire service. But it's also terrifying because 
you've got to be, you know, your different extrication techniques, your different rope rescue, your confined space, your your EMS, I mean, your your MCI stuff. I mean, it just, it's so expansive. And that's that's just the cause themselves, aside from working the tools, driving the uh, the vehicles, setting the ladder properly. Um, and so it really, I find it very hard for people to have that I know it all attitude because <laughs> it, the thing that drives me is fear. Like I, I don't want to be that person that wasn't able to make a rescue because I didn't have the tools or the muscle memory to affect it. And and that's what dri- drives me. Even to this day, as I'm retired, I'm still training. Um, and so to see that so early in some of these careers, which I see obviously is a knock on effect a lot of times from a lack of mentorship as well. But it's 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 worrying because you know. And I use this example a lot. You know, if a plumber fucks up, for lack of a better word, then someone's house gets flooded. You know, if we fuck up on a rope rescue or a fire or EMS call, people die. And that is completely unacceptable. Completely. You know, something else that you mentioned that I that I think is really true that I just wanted to expand upon real quick is this. Uh, you were talking about humility with um, and confidence. And I really think that the attitude moving with functioning with humility and adopting that sort of attitude really is the foundation of confidence because it forces you to prepare for things that you recognize you're not prepared for. And so by doing that, it creates a degree of confidence within your own practice and within your own abilities, whether you're a, high angle rescue tech or a heavy rescue or a hazmat or whatever discipline it is, it breeds confidence because now you're recognizing what you need to improve on instead of arrogantly thinking that you're never going to run that alarm or never have to deal with that problem and just kind of becoming complacent about it. And so what happens, and we talked about this in our book is that when you adopt that sort of attitude with your practice, now you're making decisions that are personal. You're making decisions that have real implications and consequences. And those decisions are a direct reflection of your own personal preparation for that situation. And humility is what makes you better at those difficult situations because it drives your preparation. So then when you run that alarm and you run that call, you're confident because you've prepared for it. If you don't, if you don't practice with humility, you'll never be confident because you can't, you can't be, you're not prepared. You haven't taken the personal time and invested in yourself to actually become better. Instead, you've become complacent thinking that you're never going to run that alarm. And then when that alarm does come, you're not acting with any sort of decisiveness. You're not moving with purpose. You're not confident because you haven't prepared for it. And so I think humility is what drives that confidence and what drives us to become more successful. Yeah, as it relates to mentorship, I had I had a couple medics on probation that were just outstanding leaders. And um, both of them worked so much with me on Post deployments, flowing water, flowing and moving, um, and it, but they did so in such a gentle way that was that was rigid and strict, 
and demanded a high standard, but was also um, really informative and was, for lack of a better term, just just kind of gentle. And they really helped bring me along and and show me, hey, this is how you flow a, this is how you throw an inch and flow an inch and three quarter, and this is how you move with an inch and three quarter, and this is what you're looking for, and this is what your what your uh, pattern should look like. This is what the hose line should feel like at this pressure, and they really were humble about the way that they were teaching me and they weren't ever trying to demonstrate how much they knew about fighting fire and uh, flowing water. And it really just reinforced to me that there's so many, there's so many outstanding people in this, in this profession that really just care about their fellow teammates and want to help them become better. And I just wanted to be like that. And I didn't want to be an, be an arrogant instructor and mentor to other people because it was so that, that way of teaching helped me so much that I knew it was going to benefit other people. If you just kind of adopt that way and you, you do, you do so in a really informative way and in an instructional setting but you can do it in a way that is really much more valuable to the person that you're teaching. And I think that that transcends EMS, it transcends the fire service, it can go into business, it can go into small business, it can go into you know, all sorts of different disciplines. If you just bring people along and really genuinely want to show them what you know, uh, it will manifest itself in humility. Yeah, you know, we were talking, Sam and I were talking about this the other day, I think that the the leadership attributes that are important, obviously, I, I think that humility is probably the most most important. But when we when we mentor people, when we're in we're when we're in charge of developing somebody else's practice and we do it with humility, what we do is we create another leader. Because they're seeing the benefit and the value of humility in whatever discipline it is. They're seeing that the, that the humble mentor can act very decisively and be very confident in their decisions and move forward with purpose. And so they see that value. And those are all demonstrations of a leader. And so when you mentor somebody in the, whatever setting it is with that attitude, you create another leader. So instead of instead of delegating or creating a situation where you're delegating tasks or delegating certain skills within a team, you're delegating a responsibility and you're delegating that attitude that they can lead themselves and become more valuable to the team. And then they can also fall in and become a great follower and be a great team member. And I think that that all comes back to this idea of humility and why it's so important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's funny because you, you talk about that last part that you, you spoke of um, and that extends obviously to to leadership up the ranks too and and if you if you develop a great team in your on your rig in your station in your battalion you have a group of men and women that you just say a couple things to and they're going to handle it 
But if you are one of these people that, again, has such a large ego that you have to tell every single person exactly how you want every single thing done, you've taken away all the ownership. And, and I've seen it in multiple departments now the the scene is an absolute disaster because you want to be the puppeteer of everyone under you rather than cutting the strings and giving them the ownership of their skills with good training good mentorship and allowing them to actually be the men and women they are and, and function as such yes i was just talking to yesterday i was just talking to one of my drivers at the station and uh i told him i said because because I'm the I'm the only medic at the station, but we've got I'm in a double company, so we've got an engine and a truck, and then I'm the medic and I ride the engine, <clears throat> and but everybody there's the EMTs and the truck goes out and runs calls and do it they do an outstanding job and um, but I was talking to one of the drivers yesterday because we ran this call for a guy that was having uh, that had a, had a, a fainting episode and he did such an outstanding job. And I didn't even say anything. And I felt like when I when I interjected anything, I felt like I was just stumbling on myself and I'm just in the way. And I told him, I said, dude, it's such an outstanding position to be in as, as the medic running the call or just as the medic being on the team where you don't even have to say anything and, and you feel like you're in your own guys' way if you do. Because you've taken so much time to develop your guys and they're, they're functioning at such a high capacity that really if you interject, you're just getting in their way. And they just need you to say, okay, what's the 12 beat say? Okay, it's, it's not a STEMI. It's not a abnormal rhythm or whatever. Okay, well, you know, and they just kind of go about their business and run the call. And I told him, I said, I just appreciate your guys' uh, commitment to excellence and being so good at what you do and not really needing any sort of guidance. But I think that that takes time to develop as a, as a leader, those type of relationships take, take time. And, but I think you're absolutely right. It's a reflection of personal leadership and the ability of these individuals to lead themselves. And then in doing so, they're also immediately able to follow when needed. So I, I think it's funny you mentioned that, and I just had that conversation yesterday at the station, and uh, it's just kind of a fun environment to be in, for sure. Well, I think, too, that something that <coughs> is true is the idea of micromanagement as it relates to the leader, and I think that micromanagement is a really poor way of leading people because you're you're essentially not allowing somebody to solve a problem the way that they deem it needs to be solved. You're not allowing them to lead themselves and you're not allowing them to use their own creativity to solve the problem. And it really, that comes back to this humility because that is a demonstration of arrogance because you think you're the only one with the answer, the only way to, to solve the problem. Now, as leaders, obviously, you have to make the call. You have to make the decision sometimes. And you have to decide how something's going to go or what it's going to look like, what your vision is. But you have to be willing to take into consideration the other people within your team. And that only happens after you've taken the time 
to develop your team and set the expectations and work together so that everybody knows what everybody else is thinking and what the expectations are within the team. Um, and like I said before, that's all comes back to humility. Now, this kind of reminded me of a, another area that I'm sure you've seen. I know I've seen definitely. Um, we've been talking about ownership and humility. Obviously, the, the the other side of the coin is the complacency that we see. Um, before we were talking, I told you of some things that I'd witnessed in <laughs> in a certain department that, uh, you know, the reality is lives will be lost because of that complacency if it isn't changed. Um, what do you, what do you think the reasons are for some of these these complacencies at our level, at the firefighter level, and also at the top of the chain? Well, I think that there's probably a couple different things, and I don't know if I can hit the nail on the head, but one I think uh, is just arrogance, an arrogant attitude towards the job and toward what we do, and also an, a misunderstanding of what we do. Um, because you know, not every, not every call we go out on is going to be a big alarm. And so I think that some people get into the job and they don't understand that really the vast majority of what we do is help, uh, grandma June up off the ground. And that needs to be at the forefront of your mentality of understanding, Hey, we need to be engaged in these calls. Um, and I think that complacency creeps in when you become bored and you don't challenge yourself anymore. And so, because you think you, you, you think you know everything, you don't need to go force any more doors. You don't need to go pull any more hose lines. You don't need to, uh, you know, run any more medical calls or run any more scenarios. So complacently, complacency slowly creeps in, um, and starts to take over and then sometimes you just become embittered towards what's going on but i think at the what also happens is people want to people are just so prone sometimes not and obviously not everybody but some people are so prone in in the desire and the need to demonstrate their own capabilities and i think when that happens uh, in the officer rank or in any rank, really, it hinders everybody else. It just hinders everybody else. So I guess I, I probably didn't really answer the question very well, but I think that those are definitely some factors. to Yeah, and just and summed up in one word, for me, the, the truth behind complacency, the vehicle by which somebody becomes complacent is one word arrogance that's where somebody gets complacent because now they're now they they feel as though there's no room for growth there's no room for taking into consideration their team members their team members input the other ideas that are coming forward that they need to adopt or maybe consider and so Arrogance is the number one way that people become complacent, in my estimation, because there's no, there's no more. Why, why get better? You're already the greatest. Why become? Why learn more? You've already, you already know everything. Why become better at a skill? Because you're already the greatest at it. And so, adopting that that attitude is 
what leads to complacency. And then, like I was saying before, what causes you to fall off the, the pinnacle of greatness because you're no longer getting better. You're no longer moving forward. And I think that that goes through any rank in any organization, in any system of discipline is the idea that once you become arrogant in your abilities or arrogant in your leadership position, you become complacent. And that's where, especially in our world, you can, that's the difference between life and death in some ways. That's the difference between making the save on the structure fire or not. That's the difference between understanding your cardiac meds and your indications for RSI. That's the difference between life and death. And you really have to be paying attention to that so you don't ever allow yourself to become complacent and adopt an attitude of arrogance. I think I think the other thing too is um, that's important in, in leadership, whether it's at the firehouse or in the military or in, in this in the small business, it it goes across all organizations is an idea of service and trying to serve the people that are uh, under you in order to make them better and teach them your job and then always learn the job above you and trying to make sure that everybody has the tools that they need in order to accomplish the objective and not only just the tools, but the training and the proper understanding of when to use those tools and then letting them go out and, and, and do it and not be so quick to give your own input as to how to solve a problem, but let the creative minds flow and see what comes up because it's pretty, it's pretty fun to watch when people do something completely different than the way that you would do it, but you recognize that it's actually probably a better way of doing it. And the only way to get there really is through humility and, and serving the people that you may be in charge of. So I think service is a big key factor to that too. It is something that, so something that I mentioned to those who have sort of become complacent or, but they, they, they become complacent and they don't really know where to go. They don't really know where to move forward. Something Sam mentioned is really important. I think the starting point, if you have, if you feel like you have become complacent in your practice or in your firehouse or whatever area it is, take it upon yourself to begin learning the job above you. And that immediately will or should squash that complacency because now you're recognizing that there are things that you don't know. If you, if you take it upon yourself to learn the job above you, the complacency should go away very quickly. And then at the same time, teach, the, teach your job to the person below you and do so with, a, with an attitude of creating a level of success within that person. Really be vested and invested in their success and developing them to become a better per- person, a better provider or whatever discipline it is. But the starting point for the complacent mind is to begin learning the job above you and teaching your job to the person below you. And I think that if you move forward and you just go out tomorrow and try and do that, 
you'll immediately recognize that you don't know everything and that there are places that you can improve upon. Yeah, no, I agree. And you just kind of reminded me of, of a conversation I had with someone at my previous department where I was going to use some of my educational reimbursement to do VMR again. Now I had uh, VMR basic, I mean, operation and then uh, tech level. And I was going to do operations again. He's like, why? You already have it. And that in myself, this was someone with a gold badge, was kind of underlined exactly that box checking mentality. Why is because I get another full week cutting up numerous vehicles, you know, muscle memory, getting repetition, and it's owning the skills that you quote unquote already have by revisiting them, realizing that you've, you know, you don't have those. You've done them before. You've been taught. But none of us cut cars every single week. None of us tie rope, you know, knots every single week. None of us go through our entire drug box every single week. So there's also that room to revisit the skills you have. And if you are from any sort of system, whether it's a personal system or a departmental system, where once you've done something once and they check a box and then they say you're good on that, then that's that's the worst thing. That's one of the biggest cancers in the fire service because you ask any athlete, hey, did you did you throw that shot put just once and then go to the Olympics? No, of course you fucking didn't. You know what I mean? So why do you think that forcing a door or throwing a ladder, you do it once, twice, yeah, a little pat on the back, nice one, yeah, you're golden. No, no. You, they just showed you that. Your goal is to master or get close to mastering each one of those skills. So if you're getting bored, you need to go back and check the the the... the Skills that you say in your mind you already own and revisit all of those as well. Totally. Yeah, it's something I just thought of because I saw an interesting interview with um, – I don't know if you know who Alex Honnell is, the guy who did the free solo up El Cap. Yes. Yeah, yeah. go ask go ask Alex Honnell. He's the best climber in the world, <laughs> right? Go ask him if he went up El Cap one time before he did it solo. Right. Oh, we just did it once, and he was like, "This is too easy. I'm going to cut off this, one of my this fingers." This is too easy. I'm just going <laughs> to do it with no rope. Think about how long it took for him to hone his skills and become very, very prepared to go out the door and ex- operate with extreme confidence because he's taken years to develop himself and years to develop his skills and prepare to be the best. Well, and I think that specifically in the fire service and, and EMS, those things are so important. Those reps are so important because I know that at my station, we pull hose, maybe not every day, but close to it. And even if it's just running a quick evolution, pulling a hose to the to the uh, cash door, masking up and, and simulating a fire attack in a um, Bravo Charlie corner, then those reps become so well ingrained in what you're doing so that when the fire actually comes you're not so concerned about how you're going to deploy the hose line now your bandwidth is so much greater and you're able to take in more information as to what's going on and you're able to stop for a second and read the building what kind of building construction do you have what era was this building built in what are some of the trip hazards that there might be is there a basement is it a balloon frame structure is it wood frame? Should I go into this commercial building with lightweight trusses, with smoke showing? You know, all these different things you're much more capable at recognizing if your skill set is really, really honed. But you cannot get your skill set honed by doing it one time and checking the box. You have to have constant reps 
so that that the skill itself is not something that you're you're uh, using your mental. your mental capacity. capacity on in the moment, and you're able to just deploy the hose line, and now you're able to look at the look at the structure and see what's going on. And that's probably the case. I'm sure that's the case for uh, police officers, and I'm sure it's the case in the military, and definitely in the fire service. And I'm sure it's relevant to all sorts of other disciplines in whether it's business or uh you know on the farm so but i think that that too also comes back to the idea of humility having the humility to know that hey i need to be good at this i need to be good at this so that in the moment i'll be able to be better and i'll be able to take in more information and affect a better change and a better outcome yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree. And even with the skills on the EMS side, like hanging a cardizen bag, all the little poppers and things that those have got, you know, and IO, I know when, when we do training, and I'm not making out like I've got all the answers. I'll give you an example of how I fucked up very recently in a moment. But um, that's when you don't just do it once, you know, go just do it 10 times. Anyone want to go again? Yes, I want to go again. I'm not going to get to cut open a pig trach anytime soon. So let me get as many reps as I can. Yeah. Totally. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, your, your hands should be the one. Force yourself to be the one volunteering to get the rep. Force yourself to be the one that wants to get the extra one, the extra rep, because you're just going to be better. You're, it's just going to improve you. It's just going to make you better and more confident. Yeah, and I think that the mistakes haunt me at least, and they're not haunt in a negative way, but they stay with me. I can think some of the biggest you know, faux pas I've had on the fire ground on an EMS scene. And I still remember them very clearly. And I just uh, interviewed recently for our local medic program here to teach. And the, the instead of it being like a regular interview, they actually gave scenarios. The, the ones that I used in my old department, absolutely fine. But they did RSI, um, which I was taught in medic school here. I did when I was precepting, so I got no excuse, but I hadn't used them in my old department. And again, I think there was this subconscious arrogance of, well, I've been a medic for X amount of time. I should be fine. Well, no, not, not with that because I couldn't recall the drugs and the doses because I hadn't used them for six years. But that's not an excuse. That's me failing to investigate what is this going to be like? What do I need to, to know? And what do I need to brush up on, even if that particular skill was never used in my department? So a very humbling experience, a very embarrassing experience, but one that I had to go back, go back to my books and say, all right, I need to fix this. See, and right there, dude, right there is an example of humility. Instead of arrogantly walking out of the interview or arrogantly walking out of the call being saying, oh, or making excuses for why you didn't need to RSI somebody or making excuses for why this didn't work or why you didn't know the medication dosages, humbly recognizing that you didn't and that you need to improve upon it and that it is a deficiency and then going and addressing the problem and becoming better. That is an example of humility and that's a perfect example of how you get better every single day, all the time. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. Now, um, speaking of, of ownership, I had uh, Dr. Peter Hantevi on, excuse me, Peter Antevi on the show. I don't know if you heard of the Hantevi system where you are. I have not, no. Have not. Okay, so an amazing system. I really want to spread the word on this too. So what he's done is create a kind of version almost of the Broslow system 
but he he's an uh, uh, a uh, emergency physician, and he realized that on himself first. So he had complete humility. If you listen to the interview with him, he's very humble about all the screw-ups he made. But he, he realized, why are we asking our medics, our, our doctors, our nurses to do this mental arithmetic at 3 a.m. when you're facing a pediatric, you know, emergency? So, you know, and, and so he changed the way he did it. So now his he actually um, puts together a book for each specific department, whether it's a fire department, EMS, you know, a hospital, so it's around everything that's actually physically in their box, but it's done by uh, volume. So you pull out your epi, it tells you two mLs on this kit, you know, whatever it is. So you're not having to do that arithmetic, but an amazing way of taking something that we've done for so long, taking a step back going, you know what, I suck at this. Is it just me or is there a way that we can actually make it better for me? And he created this incredible system that... uh I think just makes so much more sense than trying to do this this mental math that we all have to do when we're already sleep deprived and and stressed to the max. Well, you know, it, it I've not heard of that system, but that's something that we do here in Colorado Springs. Is we've adopted a system like that, and we also have our our medical division and and doctors have created a an app. That we carry that we carry around with the officer on the cell phone, and we can download it on our personal phones, so that we have the the guidelines with us every moment. We can look, we can reference, we can look things up, and then we also have the pediatric um, uh, sort of outlines that you were talking about, where it's a volume based thing. You know, you're going to push this much volume, and and it's very, it's funny because a lot of people, I think think of that as being a less of a medic or less of a firefighter. But the reality is, is that it makes you better. It makes you so much better, so much more confident, so much more decisive, so much more able to actually be a patient advocate. Because if you're not sure, you can look and reference something right now and it makes you more decisive and it makes you better. And and at the end of the day, you're, (coughs) you're providing a better treatment for the patient and that's what we're all trying to do instead of arrogantly thinking that you have to memorize everything or that you have everything memorized you probably don't not at 3 a.m in the morning when you're sleep deprived you're not going to be thinking as clearly and so to have those tools is unbelievable yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And I think that's you, you hit a nail on the head too. It's seen as a weakness. I know that term cookbook medic, like, oh, if you open your protocols and you're a cookbook medic. No, you're checking the, the, the critical thinking that you're doing and the decision making that you're doing is correct because you are sleep deprived. And, you know, I mean, show me one person that doesn't look at the PSI rating on an air chisel when they break it open. I know I do. This was called fireman proof. Well, you're just fireman proofing your EMS stuff so you don't kill a child. Absolutely, man. Yeah, what's so, so good. what's so bad about verifying that what you're doing is accurate? I don't know what the thought process is there, but yeah. Now, speaking of Peter, uh, Doctor Antevi, one thing that really resonated when we did our conversation, and it really ties in with what you guys are talking as well, is a closure on a call. 
And so to have that kind of mental health element, especially I've talked about this many times, I've never, ever had a code save. I've, I've had uh, many pre-code saves and some great interventions, me and my team that I've worked with, but I just seem to be that black cloud that gets the bleeds, GI ble- the GI bleeds, um, yeah. you know, they're just, just the unsavable patients. And so there, there's, there's a, a stress of that, of inability to save, especially where I last worked, they had the highest code save rate in the nation because they were in a theme park. Um, but what he talked about was closure on that call. And what that really is underlined by is, did you prepare? Did you do the training? Were you ready? And of course, not everything's going to go perfectly. But if you knew every single day you took your job seriously and you practiced your skills, then what happens happens and you've done your best and your team has done your best. But if you haven't, if you've been that arrogant, complacent medic, firefighter, nurse, whatever it is, then whether you realize it or not, that's going to start adding up because you knew in your heart of hearts that you didn't do everything and that person may have survived had you actually taken your job seriously. Yeah, you can deny your preparation all you want, but at the end of the day, you know, your conscience tells you that you haven't prepared for something that you should have. It does, and your arrogance tells you that you don't need to prepare for it. You're so right, and I think that Something we talk about is this idea of intention and going out the door with with purpose and understanding that and committed to the fact that what you do matters and the decisions that you make have extreme consequences and implications. And you have to be willing to prepare with the intention of running that alarm, prepare with the intention of take making that ladder save going on that fire, making a, making a vehicle extrication. You have to prepare with the mindset that you're actually going to use these tools on a scene in order to make somebody's day better, make somebody's life better or save them. And so if you operate and train and prepare with that mindset, then I think that it is more easy to recognize when you can't make that save or you didn't save that person or make the out the outcome that you wanted wasn't what you hoped for and it's easier to move on because you recognize that you have prepared there was a degree of preparation that you put into it and that you couldn't have done anything else well i think the other thing too with that preparation that's so instrumental is that um i think that Saving someone's life is not characterized by bringing them back from the dead from doing CPR. That may be a very, very small percentage of it, but why can't you think about saving Grandma June's life by getting her up off the ground after she's been there for two days? Why can't you? That is absolutely saving somebody and making sure that they're better off. They may not have been in a life or death situation, but if you wouldn't have intervened, they would have been. And just because you're not bringing someone back from the brink on every call doesn't mean that you're not preventing them from getting to the brink. And that's really what we want to do is prevent people from getting to the brink of death and getting to uh, that situation where there is no coming back from and if we can stop that snowball early then we really have in in some ways saved their life 
And I think that there should be some uh, recognition for that and in your own team and in your in yourself. Not <clears throat> We don't need to be recognized for that, but I mean just recognize that in yourself that you are affecting people's lives in a very dramatic way, in a very substantial way and meaningful way. And you are preventing grandma from getting to that brink of death in whether she's septic or whatever, because she's been lying on the ground for two days, you prevented her from developing that into a life-threatening situation. And that's just as important as cutting somebody out of a car in the acute setting uh, so that you can get them to the hospital. They both have extreme, they may be different, but they're both extremely valuable. And if you have the proper mentality of running those calls with that sort of understanding then I think it'll bode well for your career and it will reduce your uh, burnout and it will give you the ability and it give it will give you more joy throughout your career. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. And like I said, I found those, those calls very rewarding. And I think rather than look at it medically, cause I mean, you know, like I said, it, it, it is a fact about my lack of code saves, but I, it never, I never felt like I was a failure or anything like that at all. But right, the, right. the back to bed calls, it's it's a, it all roots from kindness and compassion. And you want to bring someone back from the dead. That's that's a great way of doing it too. But all those other ones, even if it's the kid that skinned their knee and you make them laugh on the way to the hospital, you know, I've had more thank you letters from patients that really were very, very non-emergent than I have of, of lives I saved because you, those are the ones that you just were kind. And that's maybe that's all they wanted that day. You know, so yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, so Sam says that I really agree with is this idea of making a friend in 15 minutes. Just just be their friend and be the best provider that you can be and do everything in your power to make their day better. Mm-hmm. Whatever the call, doesn't matter what the call is, make their day better. Serve them and be an uh, advocate for them in whatever capacity that means. Yeah, I don't know if you guys saw, I posted, I think it was yesterday, the the picture of the two uh, medics that allow the little girl to paint their nails. While, while yes, I, they were, <laughs> I mean, that, that sums it up perfectly. I thought that was that awesome. That sums it up perfectly. You're exactly right. Yep. <laughs> now, just swinging it from the other side, I, it's something I want to make sure I talk about because I haven't for a little while. Um, but we're, you know, this is a great conversation to have it. On the other side of that, if you haven't owned your training, I had a, a, a man, David, and his son, Drew, was uh, skateboarding, just fell, banged his head, and through a series of errors, um, partly in the hospital, more so in the, the EMS crew that transported him, they ended up RSIing him, not sedating him, so just knocking, knocking his drive down, totally awake. And then oh. intubated his esophagus, and he basically oh. was alert while he suffocated to death at the hands of a medic. So if anyone wants a horror story that underlines how important it is for us to learn, look up Do It For Drew Foundation, um, and they'll all go to the, the episode with David and listen to that. Every single paramedic on this planet, EMT, nurse, doctor, should listen to that episode. Oh my gosh, that's, that's just, that's horrifying. Then that, that scares me that I, there's, I understand fully that I am capable of doing something like that. 
and that scares me. So I make I I refuse to be complacent about things because that is something that can happen to me tomorrow on the ship. And I do not want something like that to happen. And so it forces me to prepare and make sure that I'm ready to go out the door. Yeah, that's a terrible story. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the other thing I think is, I'm sure you guys do this too, as a medic in the back, um, you know, if it's anything even remotely emergent, we'll have an extra person jump in the back. I will always ask this person, all right, hey, I, I've I've done this, this, and this, but we're a team. Talk to me. Am I missing anything? Are you seeing anything different? And and communicating with your other crew members and trusting them, not having the arrogance that, well, I'm the lead medic. I got this. Everyone else can shut up. You right. Know? Yeah, we do. We do that as well. We will jump in the back and bring – uh, in our system, I'll usually bring my firefighter with me. And the reason that I do that is because I've taken the time and we as medics should take the time to develop our team in the expectations that we have and what we're looking for. And so they can easily recognize if there's something wrong or we're deviating from our norm and address it. And they also bring so much value to the table because they have another set of eyes from a different perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, then I want to transition to the book for two reasons. Firstly, I want to give you guys a, a, you know opportunity to talk about the book. And secondly, I am about halfway through mine and hit a brick wall. So maybe you can help me work out how the hell to finish a book. <laughs> but, um, so your book is Life and Death Matters. So I'd love to hear the journey of, you know, its inception to the point where you actually got it out there? Well, we, um, it really started, it really started with just training people and trying to mentor them and bring them along and, uh, train people in in the medic, uh, in the medic world, like uh, precepting them and doing their hours for, uh, paramedic school. And for the listeners out there that don't understand, don't know, in medic school, typically, at least here in Colorado, you've got to do around 500 hours of internship on an ambulance or a fire engine, and then 500 hours or so in the hospital. So we do that routinely with students. And so over the course of training a couple of them, I realized that what we were doing was was pretty effective. And people were responding to it really well. And we kind of wanted to write down what it is that we do and kind of the mentality to have for running a call and a mentality to have for your career as far as the fire service goes. And so I started writing a couple things down and pretty early came to Chris and I had probably, I don't know, 8,000 or 10,000 words down and I came to Chris and I said, Hey, can you take a look at this? And what do you think about these attributes? And at that point I'd kind of gone through some of the attributes like humility and compassion and integrity and stuff like that. And I said, what do you think about this? Do you think there's any value to this? Or do you think people would enjoy it or it would help them in some way to try to better define what we do in the fire service? And he was, um, he, he really liked what, what I had already done, and so we decided at that point to kind of collaborate on it and work together. So we basically just started with an outline of what we wanted to 
what information we wanted to convey and who we were going to convey it to. And then kind of went from there and went down the, down the list of the outline and just developed the book from there. So, but developing the book in and of itself was such a big learning process for me because Lord knows I'm definitely not a professional writer by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. There's a reason there's editing. <laughs> yeah. So that, that took hundreds of hours of just trying to figure out what I'm even trying to say and how to say it and going over our own revisions and our own editing and finally realizing like my capability as a writer is so, so lacking that we needed some professional help. And then uh, we sent it off to an editor and, and she went through it and did a, I think she did a great job. She did a fantastic job especially with what she had to work with. So, um, and just the learning process of, of all the different steps that it takes to actually get a book out there is quite in depth, especially if it's anything that you want to have that is um, beneficial to people and, and professional in nature. So um, it, was a, it was really a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to do. And I think it's important to do things like that in your life and try to, it doesn't matter whatever discipline you're in, you can be the, you know, farmer in Kansas or the businessman in New York or Miami or the first responder or the volunteer responder out in rural Idaho. If you purposely challenge yourself uh, in whatever, whatever degree that means, uh, if you personally challenge yourself and commit to those challenges and it will bring so much fruit to yourself that you it bears so much fruit because you learn so much about yourself and you become much more confident in yourself and what you're doing. So but this specifically, I remember uh, thinking about you get pretty exposed when you write a book like that. And you put a lot of your thoughts on paper for everybody else to read. You open yourself up to a lot of criticism, which is OK. And because you're going to learn a lot from that criticism and, and uh, you may, some people may say some things that you didn't even think about and didn't even realize you were doing. And, but it's definitely exposing yourself to the real world as far as people telling you what they think about what you've done. So, but it's been, it was a lot of fun to do. It was, it was really a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, it was a really Cool experience, and it continues to be a really awesome experience working together. Um, one of the unique things about this book is that we have this idea that we integrate. It's an integrated approach towards towards your discipline in our discipline, obviously paramedicine. But you can really adopt the approach in any discipline. It's really transcends paramedicine it it's very uh, transfers over to the fire service very easily and also into any discipline really but we integrate the idea of having medical knowledge or understanding of whatever your discipline is and our discipline like i said is paramedicine so having a foundation of medical knowledge and then integrating that with your personal character attributes and interpersonal skills with 
principles of decision making. And when you integrate all three of those concepts, you become very valuable. You become very effective and efficient. And one of the things that's so unique about this book is that it addresses the interpersonal skills, personal character attributes and principles of decision making. Every other all the other literature really talks and speaks to the acquisition of knowledge and the in informing your intellect with medical principles, which is obviously extremely important and the foundation for the decisions that you make. You have to have that foundation very well established. But there's other factors that affect your ability to be effective and that impact your success. And those factors are decision-making principles and understanding personal character attributes. And so we really take time to define those and articulate them and then integrate that into an entire practice. And then you become more holistic as a provider and you become very effective and very confident going out the door. And so that's the uniqueness of our book that I think really brings value to the EMS and fire community because we didn't find anything else out there like that. There's no other literature that really tries to define those sorts of things and make it so tangible so that you have something to grab onto and fall back on that really defines what we do as providers and gives you tools by which to go out the door and act decisively and confidently. Yeah, I thought it was very well written. What I loved about it was use the word principles. And that's something as I'm older now, I've realized that that's, that's the key word. And in fitness, for example, people who teach the why who have the principles of movement, you can take that then and apply it on your own path. And you mentioned earlier about allowing, you know, someone you're mentoring to find their own way of doing it. And I think that's just it. If, if it's a rigid rule book, you know, like the cookbook medic would use, you know, and just following protocol A, B, C, D, um, then that's when you get in trouble. But if there's an understanding of how you need to, to conduct yourself, the professionalism, the humility, um, you know, the, the teamwork, the camaraderie, those, those elements that then resonate out to every single thing that you do, that they're the reasons why you get out of the lazy boy and, you know, pull out your protocol book or go to the engine and pull some hose. If you get that, you absolutely can apply it to everything you have in your life. Absolutely, you can. Yeah, it does. It definitely transcends just EMS and the fire service. It, if you apply it just in general in your life, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bode well for you for sure. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I, I heard on, I think it was Tim Ferriss, and I've talked about this a couple of times on here, but he had a guest who was in the business world and he had this thing he called the three whys. And what it was is someone, you know, will say, oh, we do that this way. And he'll say, well, why? And then I'll just explain. And normally most things fall apart by the second why. But, yeah. if, but if your why is because lives depend on it, then once you understand that, the motivation and the desire and all these other attributes will start falling into place. But the moment you forget that people's lives depend on you doing your job is when it all falls apart. Well, and that's a pretty important why, especially as it re relates to a first responder. That's the ultimate why. And it should drive you to develop yourself in a very professional and effective way. Well, and the, the other two, thing, too, that 
we can't forget as first responders is that not only do does the patient's life matter, right? Because it affects their life, but it affects our team's life, our willingness to prepare for the emergencies that we have to deal with. They can absolutely affect the lives of our teammates. And then ultimately they can affect our life. You know, there's that quote out there that says you can never train too much for a job that can kill you. And I think that that's probably a pretty true statement. And so we have to prepare because the the lives do matter. Yeah. And that's great. And it's a great why. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, we talked about your book. One of my first closing questions is always, is there another book that you guys love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed or something completely different. Uh, well, I don't know if there's anything specific, but I definitely try to read on a pretty consistent basis. Um, and I read a whole variety of different books on, on uh, leadership development or um, – I I, re, I I do like to read a lot of those a lot of those books, but nothing specific. I mean, uh, I like I obviously like some of the stuff that I've only read one of Jocko Willink's books, and that was uh, a couple years ago. But he he definitely has a good idea, I think, about uh, and is definitely motivating. But I haven't read anything else that he's written. Um, but Simon Sinek does a good job. I think he he wrote a book, Leaders Eat Last which is really uh, pretty – I think that's a pretty impressive book. Um, and then there's just a lot of books out there that are beneficial to mindset as far as how to deal with stress and how it relates to us and how do we deal with those things. And um, so nothing specific comes to mind, but I think that it's important to be in a constant state of learning and a constant state of reading and reading is unique in that it forces critical thinking uh, because it forces you to interpret what the author is trying to convey. And so if you're going to do it effectively, it, it requires you to be engaged, which is really good for you in your uh, thought process, your critical thinking skills, your problem solving skills. So I try to read on a pretty routine basis. Yeah, I think I think reading is one of the key factors to self-growth and self-development. And I think about the quote by, I believe it was General Mattis in one of his books. He said that if you haven't read hundreds of books, you're functionally illiterate. And I think that that's a true statement. And I think that it's a very wise one with a lot of um, insight into it because you can never become, you can never gain the experience in your life by your own experiences. And so you can never become the greatest or the best because of your experiences, I should say, rather. You can always learn from other people's experiences. And the best way to do that is by reading. When people take the time to, I was talking about this with a a documentary that I watched the other day. When people take the time to really research and devote themselves to certain things, it's a value in some ways and and taking the time to read what other people's experiences are can really bring a lot of insight into your own life and your own experiences. And I think it's really important to constantly do that. Like Sam was saying. 
What was the documentary? <laughs> it was called um, The Game Changers. And it's a documentary about uh, plant-based eating and plant-based sort of diet. And it really changed my perspective on health, really. And so now I've got to work through the, the things that he put forward in this documentary. And it was a fantastically done episode, uh, show on plant-based eating instead of eating so much meat and you know these sort of he kind of dispels some myths that exist i think in the general thoughts of diet now i'm uh, actually interviewing james wilkes the founder of that or the the creator of that movie in about two weeks in la oh man are you serious yeah no, i i i love the plant-based um philosophy and there's no absolutes in life you know but i think especially if you're trying to regain some health then i think the plant-based has proven to be very very effective is it something you sustain your entire life well everyone's different but um i think we definitely eat far too much meat and the meat we eat is is very very unclean generally so that even if you don't go full-fledged plant-based there are so many things you can glean from that that to improve your diet well i was at, at the firehouse you can imagine that that was a little bit unsettling having that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but the guys I work with are very, very much into, into that um, lifestyle. And when I showed them that and they watched the documentary, they, they're all three of our attitudes really changed. And it's really been awesome to kind of watch just in our little firehouse in Colorado Springs, really kind of adopting a new perspective on health and a way of, I think fueling yourself so that you can be more effective and live longer and be healthier. It was really well. I, that's awesome that you're interviewing him. It, it was such a well done documentary. I thought it really impacted me and changed a lot of my preconceived notions about stuff. Yeah. Well, I had uh, Rip Esselstyn, the guy that wrote the Engine Five. Is it? I think Engine Five Diet. Um, so he's a fireman in Texas. Did the plant based thing. His dad was a big plant based advocate. And then I had Dr. Gregor, who wrote How Not to Die, who's a plant-based physician. Yeah. Um, so, you know, some great people on there. Have you seen the Forks Over Knives, the documentary? I have, yeah. Okay. I, thought, I, I, I saw that one, too, and I, I liked that one as well. I think the um, Game Changers probably spoke to me just a little bit more because of the – it made it a little bit more personal and also – it was really a, the way that he did that was really effective because it he took very high level athletes and kind of dispelled some myths for me. But I did enjoy folks forks over knives as well. Yeah, yeah, and I've seen there's been a lash, you know, a backlash at that movie, and then the carnivore diet is the other side, and and people just miss the point. Immerse, like you said, immerse yourself in all these things, and then try them for yourself and see what happens. I felt amazing on the plant base. I think I didn't have enough diversity in what I was eating, so after a while, I felt kind of my energy, you know, reducing a bit. But what I found is plant-based with occasional clean meat works well for me but if i i tell you right now hands down if i had cancer if i had blood pressure issues anything else i would go back to straight straight plant-based to to reset that and then introduce things 
if I felt like I needed to. But but the the, the pick a side bullshit mentality drives me crazy. Try it yourself. You know, take these little things and and look at the 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 correlation where they all agree. Take out shitty food, no processed food, no refined starches. Get your meat to have actually lived in a field. Get your vegetables to not be sprayed by someone in a hazmat suit. Start there. Then you're probably going to feel pretty damn good. Yep. It, well, and and I think that coming back to the idea of of books and reading that that is just such a great way of informing yourself and growing. And like General Mattis said, I think it was General Mattis. I hope it was. I don't want to be misquoting him. But if you haven't read hundreds of books, you're functionally illiterate because you can't possibly gain insight into everybody else's experiences. So learning from theirs is extremely valuable. I'll give you a moment to chime in. No, um, I think that you guys are right on. I watched that documentary too, uh, Game Changers. It definitely um, impacted me also. I think that uh, I'm trying to – I think that's probably one area that I'm not very – I'm just not as disciplined as I should be. And if I was more disciplined, I would definitely eat more uh, plant-based – have a more plant-based diet. But I know that I've definitely cut out a large amount of meat the only time that i've been eating meat for the last month or so is at the station and so um which has been fine and we we eat pretty good at the station anyway i think that that's beneficial for for all of us and we've got a couple guys there that that um really enjoy eating eating well and trying to eat more plants and fruits and vegetables so but i do like the uh I'm trying right now, um, this is probably a little off topic, but right now I'm trying to work through the book, uh, the Gulag Archipelago, and that thing is intense. And it is, but like we were talking about, it is so informative of somebody else's experience. And you want to talk about somebody else's experiences, that thing, that book uh, is a wake-up call. And it is just it's intense and it's hard to read at times, but I can never, I'm never going to go through that. Hopefully I never go through something like that, but that doesn't mean that I can't learn about what this guy went through. And so, and I don't know if you know what that book's about, but um, that's one of the books that I'm working through right now. And it's, it's pretty amazing. So, and I think that it gives you better insight into just what you, how you live and how you go about your day-to-day operations, it doesn't mean that, you know, those, and I think that those things can affect you as a firefighter and a, and a first responder and probably affect you as a business owner. And, um, in a lot of ways, other people's experiences will have some sort of effect on your insight and your interpretation of what they did. And it's good for you. Someone mentioned that the other day. Is it Puello Coelho that wrote that? No, it's a guy named Alexander. Um, it's uh, he's a Russian. Um, he was a Russian gentleman in the in the Russian gulags. It's by a, a guy named Alexander. I can't even pronounce his last name. Solzhen Heitzens. Okay, I can't. I'm, mur- I'm murdering that guy's last name, but it's really an amazing book. And uh, I'm reading the abridged version 
that's probably about I don't I think it's about 600 pages but the unabridged version is three volumes and it's probably about 1800 pages wow and uh, so I'm do I'm trying to get through the abridged version right now but it's about the it's about this this guy who was in the Russian Soviet uh, gulags in socialist or communist Russia and what they did and how they treated these people and really what's interesting is he is he comes to the conclusion that he had a lot to do with his own imprisonment and he reflects on why he's there and what he did to contribute to it himself. And I mean, you want to talk about a, a book that delves into the personal psyche of somebody and really learn from someone's experiences and the environment of uh, communist Russia that he was in. It is unbelievable, but it's an intense book for sure. Well, it was uh, written in, I believe, 1970, 1970s? I think it was written before that, but he got a Nobel Prize for it in 1970. In 1970, yeah. Right. Have you read uh, Man's Search for Meaning? Uh, no, I haven't read that. Oh, my God. So, so the same thing you're talking about, but I'm looking at it right now. I got it in front of me. Um, 165 pages. <laughs> so, actually, not even that. I think that was the afterward. But same kind of thing. Viktor Frankl grew up, well, not grew up, but um, was in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And it went through hell. But his, it was almost like the opposite. Like he, right off the, the bat, seemed to have that grasp of not being a prisoner despite the horrendous conditions that he was in. So I highly recommend that one as well. Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah, I'll put that one on the list. Go to the library and get it. Yeah. I'll probably have to take a break after the gulag. Yeah, he read some Mary Poppins <laughs> or something. Yeah, I'll read some. I'll go read them. Yeah, Mary Poppins. Yeah, that's good. That's funny. So, Sam, you about to say something? No, that was it. That was it. Brilliant. All right, so then the next question. Is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military hospital and everyone else that listens to it now well if you're asking me i one of the one of the biggest people that i think you should have on the show would be one of my buddies here at the here at Colorado springs fire and it's a guy named ryan royal who is an outstanding firefighter and leader and mentor and I was just talking this morning about him with our, with our new kid that uh, just started their probation. She just started yesterday, and I was talking to her about him. And what makes him so effective and unique is that although his skill set is, is super polished, he's so humble about the way he presents the material. And so um, he's just such a great instructor. So if you want to talk, if you want to have somebody on the show that can talk to firefighters, that's your guy for sure. Brilliant. Anyone to add? I can't. I can't think of anybody right right offhand. No, um, but I would tag on with Sam. Ryan Royal is uh, the incredible firefighter and mentor and leader on our department. That would be an outstanding candidate for interviewing it for firefighters yeah you'd have an amazing conversation with that guy i mean he just to sit down and pick his brain as as a new firefighter for me i mean i've been on the for going on um six years now 
and just to sit down and pick his brain about things and how to read a building and how to read smoke and how to just the mentality to have behind fighting a fire has been so great. And he, and I've been fortunate that he's been at my station for a little while now and, uh, um, on the, on a different shift and I've gotten to work with him a couple times, but over the years I've been able to talk to him. And if you want to interview somebody that really knows what they're doing and has really honed their craft, that's the guy to talk to. Brilliant. All right. Well, thank you. So the next question before we talk about how people can find you in the book, what do you do to decompress when you're not working or writing? I think what the biggest thing I do to, to decompress is I do, I work out, I try and really be consistent about getting my body exercised and, and trying to kind of relieve some of that stress. Um, but we live in Colorado, uh, I love getting outside, doing the hikes, going camping in the summers. And my wife right now is trying to get me convinced to start snowboarding. I'm from here, but I never really took that up. So this winter might be a uh, might be an adventure in learning how to do that. Beautiful. That's what I was doing last last winter. It's amazing. You got an amazing slopes up there. Yeah, yeah. I do kind of the same thing. I try to uh, just. Uh, exercise is definitely a big one eating healthy i think is a big one that just kind of helps you in general um to the best that you can do anyway but um those things definitely exercise helps me decompress for sure and then just kind of honestly just relaxing and and uh reading a book or watching a movie helps me de decompress a little bit and um but i think that a lot of times you know to be honest with you, if you have the proper mindset, it reduces the need to decompress quite as much because your stress level is just not quite as high and you don't get yourself so worked up over things if you have the right mindset toward what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that organizational stress can be a, a big component and if you're from yeah a department that you know is, is progressive and owning what we talked about today then you're removing a lot of that unnecessary stress and if you're in the polar opposite then you're in an immense amount of stress that's completely unneeded and you're just compounding what you're already seeing as your job well those things can become stressful especially when there's nothing that you can do to affect it yeah i couldn't agree more all right, so then most importantly, where can people find you and how can they get a copy of the book? So we're on Instagram and Facebook. Instagram, we're at, at Field Medics. That's probably the easiest way to get in touch with us is through that account. You could also email us at info at field-medics.com. That's our business email. We also have our website, field-medics.com, which we have – all our blogs on there, everything we're doing, and also um, inter interviews that we've been a part of. The way you get a hold of the book, easiest way is going to be going to Amazon and ordering it straight from there. Just plug in the quick Life and Death Matters search and it comes pops right up. Um, that's the easiest way to get a hold of the book. Um, and I think that's I think that's it. Brilliant. All right. Well, Chris and Sam, I want to say thank you. Firstly, you are my first identical twins that I've interviewed. So 
that in <laughs> itself is cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, but thank you for, for reaching out. Thank you for the book. It's incredible. And uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to everyone on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. It was really, really a great conversation and long, long awaited. So I appreciate you giving us the opportunity to come have a conversation. Yeah, James, we appreciate it. It was great. Thank you very much.